Hi, I'm Mitch, and this is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show focused on policy analysis in international affairs. In this episode, we explore the recent political upheaval in the Southern Africa region, as the presidents of both Zimbabwe and South Africa have been removed from office and replaced by their second-in-command. Now, in some ways, it's remarkable that two neighboring countries with such entrenched ruling parties would see the resignations of their leaders within weeks of each other. At the same time, both Robert Mugabe and Jacob Zuma were widely considered corrupt and ineffective leaders, so perhaps it's not that surprising that they were ultimately removed. Looking to the future, both Zimbabwe and South Africa have new presidents, but it's unclear what their leadership will bring to the region. Will Zimbabwe and South Africa prosper under positive reforms, or will it be more of the same with little difference? To unpack these political transitions, I spoke with Dr. Linda Freeman, a former professor of political science at Carleton University and an expert on political affairs in South Africa and Zimbabwe. Linda Freeman, thank you so much for joining us on Policy Talks. Good to be here. Uh, To start off, as someone who has studied these countries in great detail, What are your overall impressions of what has happened in Zimbabwe and South Africa over the past several weeks? Well, I think that the removal of Robert Mugabe after 37 years and Jacob Zuma after nine years, uh, our case, in in both cases, uh, reflects the interest of the parties that brought each country to liberation, ANC in South Africa, um, ZANU-PF in Zimbabwe, um, they realized that they were on a downward slide. And what we're looking at is an attempt in both cases of these ruling parties to pull themselves together and to reshape so that they can continue to appeal to the electorate and continue to rule. So let's start with uh, South Africa. Um, okay. You You mentioned that uh, the the resignation of Jacob Zuma is uh, in part uh, the ANC African National Congress uh, an attempt to try and and uh, reorganize itself somewhat. Um, is the African National Congress still the party of Nelson Mandela, or has its reputation evolved domestically and internationally? The ANC is not still a party of Nelson Mandela because he was a very very hard act to follow. Uh, in some ways. It, it was a, a party in those days of, of high moral reputation. By the time uh, the party went through the Mbeki period and then the Zuma period, I think one could say that, that that reputation is no longer there. And the fact that the party uh, lost significant, about 10, point, 10 points, I think, in, in the last local government elections in 2016 indicated that the electorate felt that it was no longer the same party. We've seen now uh, successively, both with Thabo Mbeki and now Jacob Zuma, uh, the sitting president of South Africa, uh, being pushed out of power internally by the African National Congress Party. What do you make of that? Well, I think things had gotten so bad with Jacob Zuma and the electoral prospects were so dim for the national election in 2019 Uh, that although it was a very hard fight to to change things, it started with the election of a new 
ANC president in December, which was, as we know now, uh, won by a very slim margin by Cyril Ramaphosa. Um, and then uh, in mid-February, on Valentine's Day, one saw Jacob Zuma re- resigning. And that was as a result of pressure from within the National Executive Committee of the ANC. They wanted him to go. And although he didn't want to go, there was significant indication that uh, uh, the party was not prepared to continue to have him as their leader. So in, in the Zuma case, then I think that... Uh, it indicated that uh, uh, things were pretty dire uh, to to get to this stage. So is this then uh, a showcase of the institutional strength of South Africa, or is it more a case of the fragility of the South African executive branch? Well, Zuma's removal was an intra-ANC affair, so the party, in a sense, function to do uh, what I think many South Africans felt was necessary. Uh, in terms of broader institutions, uh, South Africa's, I think, distinguished from Zimbabwe by having uh, very strong autonomous institutions. Here I'm thinking of the judiciary, which has been absolutely crucial in the process of removing uh, Zuma and indicating what his reputation was. The independent media has been stellar, superb an- analysis. Uh, and so you have some very strong institutions, um, and you have some very weak ones. The police and the uh, Hawks, the, the uh, independent investigative unit, uh, were very much uh, captured by the Zuma people and uh, really functioned according to who Zuma appointed to lead them. And I think that was true everywhere else, where there was some autonomy, they functioned brilliantly. Uh, where there wasn't, they became ciphers. Can you briefly uh, explain to us, uh, because when we when we examine the the situation in South Africa, it's important to note that uh, there is the ANC, which has, uh, it, it, which elects its own its own president, and then there is the president of South Africa. But those don't necessarily have to be the same person at the same time, as we just saw, uh, with Cyril Ramaphosa being elected president of the ANC in December, uh, while Jacob Zuma was the president of South Africa. Can you elaborate a little bit more for the listeners of of why this is? Well, the ANC as a political party has its own mechanisms. And indeed, the the difference between the two, the fact that one is elected uh, before the other, means that uh, both in the Mbeki uh, case and also the Zuma case, uh, the distinction meant that there were two centers of power uh, which led to a very dysfunctional government. So uh, that, I think, was certainly the motivation in the Ramaphosa people uh, within the ANC pushing to have Jacob Zuma removed because they hadn't removed the problem. And there's been some pressure within South Africa to have the two elections aligned a bit more. Um, in the Mbeki case, it, uh, Mbeki actually continued to stay in office as a state president for some months before he was ultimately removed. So in your opinion, uh, given what what has happened now with, with Tabo Mbeki and then, and then Jacob Zuma, was the writing on the wall once uh, Cyril Ramaphosa was elected as president of the ANC that uh, essentially Jacob Zuma would most likely not be able to finish his term as president of South Africa? 
Well, yes and no. The writing was on the wall in that Ramaphosa came out of the starting blocks as ANC president, acting in a very presidential manner. He went to Davos and made statements that certain aspects of Zuma policy would not happen, like a nuclear deal, which was prohibitively expensive and which South Africa didn't need, and continued on to suggest that the phrase has been used as a new dawn was upon them. So, yes, in a sense. Uh, no, because Zuma retained in the party enormous power. I mean, uh, Ramaphosa's victory as ANC president in December was very slim, 179 votes out of 5,200. And so uh, he was up against and continues to be up against a very significant uh, core of the ANC, which were Zuma people and which continue to be Zuma people and are determined that Cyril Ramaphosa will not serve longer than one term. You mentioned the positioning of of the new South African president, uh, a new dawn. Uh, Cyril Ramaphosa is the the president of South Africa. What can we t- uh, what can we expect to see from his presidency? Will there be any changes or reform within the ANC or the government at large under his leadership? Well, if there is reform, it's going to be slow and steady and methodical. I think the phrase New Dawn is probably overworked because what we've seen so far, both in the the fact that he kept a number of Zuma people who had been very compromised and have a terrible reputation for corruption and incompetence still in the cabinet. He also passed a Zuma a budget, which in a sense was, was very uh, regressive, hurt the poor. He sacrificed a chunk of the working class's disposable income uh, at the altar of fiscal consolidation. And so this is not going to be a new dawn for a lot of people. It's going to be a period of compromise and limitation. So then, if ANC has this this problem of corruption, and yet much of the old guard uh, from from the Zuma years is still uh, in positions of influence, will it will we see any real progress specifically on the the issue of tackling corruption? In your estimation, well, I certainly think that's Ramaphosa's intention. Um, and it'll all depend on this this battle uh, with the existing Zuma people within the ANC. Uh, he, he, I think what one can say in his favor is that in very key portfolios, like the Minister of Finance, Treasury, and Minister of Public Services, he's put very good people in, people who've been thrown out by Jacob Zuma, but who have a proven record, like Natla Nenny, the Minister of Finance, and Pravin Gordon, who is now the Minister of Public Works, and there are others. So in very crucial positions, he's positioned his people. So certainly Gordon has made it clear that he's going to try and clean up the state-owned industries, uh, and that's essential for the South African economy. If we look outwardly, with the new president, can we expect a change in the foreign policies of other countries as they pertain to South African relations? Well, a big part of Ramaphosa's appeal has been to say to the West, uh, please, we're open for business, come back. And uh, that, that I think, has got a lot of people very interested. But 
at the same time, he has uh, said, agreed uh, with a lot of pressure from inside the ANC to uh, land expropriation without compensation. And I think one can see the, the Zuma wing pushing for something like this and also the fringe left party, the EFF, the Economic Freedom Fighters, influencing that decision. Whether it'll actually happen or not is an open question, but that does tend to discourage foreign investment when you get that kind of phrase. So uh, it, it's, it's a very touchy moment. There's been an awful lot written about it. We'll have more with Linda Freeman after a quick break. You're listening to Policy Talks Podcast, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. The maintenance of economic stability and confidence amongst the transacting public, the local business community, and foreign investors remains key to our reform agenda. That was New Zimbabwean President Emerson Manangagwa speaking at his inauguration about potential reforms in Zimbabwe. With an understanding of the transition of power in South Africa, Dr. Freeman and I moved the conversation slightly north to discuss the transition in Zimbabwe. I'd like to shift gears a little bit and uh, focus now on South Africans' neighbor to the north. Zimbabwe. Um, how is it possible that Robert Mugabe, the father of Zimbabwean independence, saw his base of power deteriorate, deteriorate so rapidly after 37 years in power, especially considering the strong electoral results uh, of ZANU-PF in the 2012 election? Well, the election was 2013, but the, the, we can date it back really uh, you know, probably to the mid-late 90s. But the, the sort of rapid run-up to Mugabe's ouster had to do with, I think, two fundamental factors. One of them was the relationship of the military to the faction led by Emerson Mnangagwa, and the other was the erosion of the much-vaunted strategic brilliance of Mugabe himself. Um, he began to systematically demolish his, his support base. It was really quite extraordinary. In 2014, he threw out his deputy, Joyce Mujuru, 100 MPs, half the cabinet, who knows how much support. Um, and this was partly in aid of a succession strategy in which he was slowly trying to position his wife to succeed him. And I think that uh, that was one uh, pillar of support. The next was the war veterans. Uh, as early as 2016, he uh, had almost declared war on them, put water cannons on them when they demonstrated. And finally, his wife had, for a number of years, been attacking the military, and, and the military appealed to Mugabe to pull to get her to, to uh, tone down, and he, he wouldn't hear it. So these were the three key bases of his support. And when push came to shove in the military coup, uh, they were the ones that prevailed. His power base was in the police and the Central Intelligence Organization, but they they just did not uh, have anything like the power of the groups that he'd, he had demolished and who had 
supported Manangagua. When Mugabe threw out Manangagua uh, at the beginning of November of last year, which I guess you could point to as perhaps the catalyst that uh, ultimately led to to Mugabe's resignation, did he not think about the the ramifications given what you just said and, and the allegiances that uh, Manangagua had? Well, at, at 93, I think he be- begun to lose it. Uh, you know, when you've been in power that long, you may not see clearly. And he didn't believe that the military wouldn't, wouldn't back him. He'd give them a lot of land. And he was quite flummoxed when, when they didn't play ball. Uh, for one thing, uh, the commander of the armed forces, Constantino Chuenga, had been in China. And on his return, he was warned that the police were waiting at the airport to arrest him. And he had put his own people from the military in place. That was a key moment. And after that, he uh, convened a meeting of all the armed forces and uh, made a number of important statements about the, the, the political situation. And the following day, um, the, armed, the armored vehicles rolled into Harare. So uh, Mugabe just got it wrong. Emerson Manangagwa is the new president of Zimbabwe, formerly uh, vice president, uh, long, long-standing member of ZANU-PF. He held several cabinet positions. Given Manangagwa's long history as a ZANU-PF insider, is it really, is it realistic to assume that his leadership is going to bring about any reforms? Well, um, his claim and and his declared intention is to produce economic reform, but not political. Uh, and these, there are clear signs now that that's the way it's going to be played out. After his uh, takeover and his inauguration, uh, people in Zimbabwe were ecstatic at finally seeing the end of Mugabe's uh, rule. I mean, on the 18th of November, you had people all over the country demonstrating it's just jubilation. Um, but very soon after the reality began to sink in by his first cabinet appointment, the joke was that the only person not in that cabinet was Mugabe. It was just very, very many of the same people, except for the factions that had been around Mugabe, the so-called G40, who were no longer part of it. So that was one sign that things were going to stay, stay the same. And it was very depressing because everybody thought there would be technocrats, maybe a few people from the opposition who'd proven themselves in a government of national unity just didn't happen. And Mugabe, and Manangawa's um, ministers said, no way, we're, we're, we're running the show. The second thing uh, which indicated very little political reform is that uh, Manangawa refused to bring uh, the electoral rules in compliance with the 2013 constitution. And so uh, Zimbabwe goes to the polls this year with the same old system, the same old rigging. And, um, you know, it, it, it's, the change is not going to be there politically. And then fi- the third sign of a disinterest in political reform uh, was in bringing the country together in reconciliation and dealing with uh, some of the terrible uh, incidents in Mugabe's role most significantly, but there are others, the Gugurundi of the 1980s, where 20,000 people in Matabililand mm-hmm. were slaughtered, and that's a conservative estimate. Isn't Munangago was centrally involved. Right, that was going to be my question. Isn't it, isn't it essentially common knowledge at this point that Munangagwa was 
one of the central figures in Operation Gukurahundi? Well, and the commander of the 5th Brigade was Parent Sherry, who's Winningagwa's Minister of Agriculture and Lands, I think. I got the title just right. But it is a Gukurahundi cabinet. And when Winningagwa was pressed on this by a BBC reporter who asked him repeatedly whether he could apologize now for it, I mean, it's public knowledge, uh, Winningagwa lost his cool and uh, said, I don't know what your problem is. So if this is clearly a sensitive issue. It's a sign that the hardline political uh, stance is not going to be re- relaxed uh, now or perhaps ever. But where he is going to reform is the economy. He is determined to come to grips with the uh, incompetence and corruption uh, that has prevailed and put the Zimbabwean economy in the ditch and also the very lunatic policies in some cases of the Mugabe period. Uh, that may be easier said than done, simply because there are systems in place of people who have benefited from the old ways. And it'll be interesting to see, uh, as the period progresses, whether he can make a dent in it. He's made some gestures. He said that uh, some of the uh, farms may be returned. Uh, Indigenization policy, which insisted that uh, local people have 51% of resources, will only apply in platinum and gold. So we'll see. But that's certainly the, the thrust of his, his administration. Do you think that these reforms, the focus on economic reforms, but not necessarily political reforms, will move the needle at all in terms of uh, a thawing of relations and eased sanctions imposed by Western donors? Interestingly enough, the U.S. has just said that they're not going to relax uh, the sanctions. Just yesterday, I think. Uh, But Britain and Europe are keen. It'll all depend, I think, on how uh, free uh, and fair the elections are. That's going to be an acid test, because Munangagwa's been told in no uncertain terms that if this is an overtly rigged election, then then forget Western support. So uh, we'll see what transpires. Uh, I want to return to the elections in a moment, but first, um, just... The internal politics of ZANU-PF and the clear divisions that formed in the lead up to the resignation of Robert Mugabe uh, in terms of uh, there was Team Lacoste, so named because uh, Emerson uh, Manangagua has uh, the nickname the crocodile. Uh, So there was that faction that supported him. And then there was the, uh, I believe, the G40 faction, which was largely lining up behind uh, Grace Mugabe. Um, Have there been any overtures to date or has Emerson uh, Manangagwa uh, indicated at all what he's planning to do to bring everyone back together under the ZANU-PF banner? I, I don't think he's going to reconcile with the G40. Uh, in fact, um, there is one of the leaders of the G40, Xavier Casaquari, who's tried to come back but hasn't made it yet. Uh, others like Jonathan Moyo and uh, Patrick Zorao have from exile, hidden exile, we're not sure where they are, uh, have been on an all-out assault against uh, Monongagwa. So it doesn't look like there'll be a wholesale return. Some of the leaders of that faction were jailed, uh, their houses shot up, uh, the cash that was lying around confiscated. Uh, So uh, the the interesting thing that's happening in Zimbabwean politics is that um, the 
people who were not happy about Mugabe's ouster, and particularly his Zuzuru ethnic group, uh, are now forming another party. And whether that will amount to anything, we'll see in the following months. They do have a lot of money, but whether they'll get support is another question. So focusing on the future in both South Africa and Zimbabwe, uh, Zimbabwe is scheduled to have a, an election this year, South Africa next year. Given the political upheaval uh, at the president level in both countries, what predictions do you have for how things are, are going to play out? Do these resignations make it more likely or less likely for an opposition party to to dethrone uh, one of these uh, highly entrenched ruling parties? Well, the, the, in South Africa, I think the opposition is a bit on the back foot now with Cyril Ramaphosa because they've gotten rid of the looter-in-chief. And so a lot of the electorate that sat out the 2013 um, election, or what was the last election? I can't remember any of the ones, the NCs that, that sat out, in fact, the local government election in 2016, uh, they, may, they may come back. Uh, attracted by Ramaphosa. Um, so the ANC might actually do better than they would have. Uh, and so that this may have been a good good move. Um, but whether he's going to be able to do anything in terms of addressing the serious issues in South Africa, the, the three great evils of poverty, inequality, and unemployment is another matter. And until he does that, South Africa is always going to have a, a certain... Uh, more or less element of instability. Um, and that's just the way it is. In Zimbabwe, uh, the stability that may come, uh, I, I, I can't imagine Zanopiev not being elected in the election this year, but the stability that may come uh, may be uh, dependent on what Munangawa can do with a shattered economy. I mean, he's got a huge job there. Um, so uh, that that that's an if. Uh, the worry now that one sees in reports from Zimbabwe is that the military is keen on dictating what's going on. So political instability can't be ruled out, i.e. within this uh, Menengagwa administration, whether the military will uh, allow him to do what he wants to do for the time being. If we look uh, more broadly across Africa, uh, Particularly in the case of Robert Mugabe, someone who was in power for 37 years, um, was uh, a liberation hero, or viewed largely as, as a liberation hero, not just in his own country, but you know, in, in other African countries as well. Uh, do these high-level resignations happening so soon after each other, do they have the possibility to create some kind of a snowball effect in other countries with... Uh, corrupt or unpopular or very uh, well-entrenched uh, presidents or uh, political leaders? Well, the record's mixed. I mean, don't forget that in Angola, Dos Santos uh, was in power for 38 years and he retired. Uh, very corrupt administration. Uh, the next leader has had some success in beginning a cleanup. Uh, I think things get I don't think you can generalize because the terrain is different in every country. But uh, certainly I think that uh, it's the, the, the jubilation of people at both the uh, end of 
uh, Mugabe and Zuma suggest that sooner or later, uh, the politics of nationalism, which liberation movements in power represented, may uh, be eroding as new generations uh, come into maturity, and you may have a, a different sort of politics than the liberation movements won. But they can't rely on their history forever uh, as the basis of their credibility. That what this new generation wants are jobs, uh, some level of living, etc. I think we will leave it there. But uh, Dr. Linda Freeman, thank you so much for joining us on Policy Talks and and giving us your perspective on what is an exciting time, I think, in in the region and uh, something that we will continue to follow very closely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Policy Talks. Remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at PolicyTalksPod for updates and related content. This episode was made possible thanks to the support of the Carleton University Graduate Students Association, which represents the collective interests and promotes the general welfare of the graduate students of Carleton University. To learn more, you can visit their website at gsacarleton.ca. And finally, I'd like to thank our production team for this episode. Samran Roy, Hamza Haddad, Kenneth Boddy, and Joe Venkatesh. Until next time, I'm Mitch, and this is Policy Talks. Policy Talks.